16. Of the bridge the town began to have inns and to be so frequented as to outvie its neighboring mother, Bray, a much more ancient place, where the famous vicar lived. The old bridge gave place in 1772 to a grand new one with very graceful arches, which was designed by Sir Roland Taylor. Abingdon, another of our Berkshire towns, has a famous bridge that dates back to the 15th century, when it was erected by some good merchants of the town, John Brett and John Hookins and Geoffrey Barber, with the aid of Sir Peter Basiles of Basilesley, who supplied the stone from his quarries. It is an extremely graceful structure well worthy of the skill of the medieval builders, it is some hundreds of yards in length, spanning the Thames and meadows that are often flooded, the main stream being spanned by six arches, Henry V is credited with its construction, but he only graciously bestowed his royal license, in fact these merchants built two bridges, one called Burford Bridge and the other across the fort at Coulomb, the name Burford has nothing to do with the beautiful old town which we have already visited, but is a corruption of Burford, the town fort at Abingdon. Two poets have sung their praises, one in atrocious Latin and the other in quaint, old-fashioned English. The first poet made a bad shot at the name of the king, calling him Henry Ivy instead of Henry V. Though it is a matter of little importance, as neither monarch had anything to do with founding the structure. The Latin poet sings, if we may call it singing, Henricus Cordus Cordofendavrat and Orex Pontem Burford Superindus at Ford. The English poet fixes the date of the bridge for Henry V. 1416 and thus tells its story, King Henry V, in his forty year he hath I found for his folk a bridge a in Berkshire for carties with carriage may go and come clear, that many winters afore were marred in the mire, now as Coulomb hath I come to an end and all the conter the better and no man the worse, few folk there were cowed that way meant, but they waged a cold or paid of the air purse, and if it were a beggar had breed in his bag, he should be right soon I bid to go about, and if the poor penniless the hereward would have, a hit or a girdle and let him go about, Coulomb hath hath caused many a curse I blessed the our helpers we had a better way, without any penny for cart and horse, another blessed Piscinus's brigs to make that there the petul may not pass a after great shores, dull it is to draw a dead body out of a lake that was fold in a fount soon and fellow of ours, fairy, the poet was grateful for the mercies conveyed to him by the bridge, fold in a fount soon, of course, means, washed or baptized in a stone font, he reveals the misery and danger of passing through a fort, after great showers, and the sad deaths which befell adventurous passengers when the river was swollen by rains and the fort well nigh impassable, no wonder the builders of bridges earned the gratitude of their fellows, moreover, the Sabingan bridge was free to all persons, rich and poor alike, and no toll or pondage was demanded from those who would cross it, Within the memory of man there was a beautiful old bridge between Reading and Caversham. It was built of brick, and had ten arches, some constructed of stone. About the time of the restoration some of these were ruinous, and obstructed the passage by penning up the water above the bridge so that boats could not pass without the use of a winch. And in the time of James I.I. the barge masters of Oxford appealed to courts of exchequer, asserting that the charges of pondage exacted on all barges passing under the bridge were unlawful claiming exemption from all tolls by reason of a charter granted to the citizens of Oxford by Richard I.I., they won their case. This bridge is mentioned in the close rolls of the early years of Edward I. as a place where assizes were held. The bridge at Cromarsh and Grand Pond outside Oxford were frequently used for the same purpose. So narrow was it that two vehicles could not pass. For the safety of the foot passenger little angles were provided at intervals into which he could step in order to avoid being run over by carts or coaches. 
The chapel on the bridge was a noted feature of the bridge. It was very ancient. In 1239 and Lord de was ordered to let William, chaplain of the chapel of Caversham, had an oak out of Windsor Forest with which to make shingles for the roofing of the chapel. Passengers made offerings in the chapel to the priest in charge of it for the repair of the bridge and the maintenance of the chapel and priest. It contained many relics of saints, which at the dissolution were eagerly seized by Dr. London, the King's Commissioner. About the year 1870 the old bridge was pulled down and the present hideous iron girder erection substituted for it. It is extremely ugly, but is certainly more convenient than the old narrow bridge, which required passengers to retire into the angle to avoid the danger of being run over. These bridges can tell many tales of battle and bloodshed. There was a great skirmish on Caversham Bridge in the Civil War in a vain attempt on the part of the Royalists to relieve the siege of Reading. When Wallingford was threatened in the same period of the Great Rebellion, one part of the bridge was cut in order to prevent the enemy riding into the town, and you can still detect the part that was severed. There is a very interesting old bridge across the Upper Thames between Bankton and Thuringen. It is called Rancock Bridge, probably built in the 13th century, with its three arches and a heavy buttress in the middle niched for a figure of the Virgin, and a cross formerly stood in the center. A cut has diverted the course of the river to another channel but the bridge remains, and on this bridge a sharp skirmish took place between Robert de Vere, Earl of Oxford, Marquess of Dublin, and Duke of Ireland, a favorite of Richard I.I., upon whom the king delighted to bestow titles and honors. The rebellious lords met the favorite's forces at Rancot, where a fierce fight ensued. De Vere was taken in the rear, and surrounded by the forces of the Duke of Gloucester and the Earl of Derby, and being hard-pressed. He plunged into the icy river it was on the 20th day of December, 1387 with his armor on, and swimming downstream with difficulty saved his life. Of this exploit a poet sings, here Oxford's hero, famous for his boar, while clashing swords upon his target sound, and showers of arrows from his breast rebound, prepared for worst of fates, and daunted stood, and urged his heart into the rapid flood, the waves in triumph bore him, and were proud to sink beneath their honorable load. Religious communities, monasteries and priories, often constructed bridges. There is a very curious one at Crowland, probably erected by one of the abbots of the famous Abbey of Crowland or Crowland. This bridge is regarded as one of the greatest curiosities in the kingdom. It is triangular in shape, and has been supposed to be emblematical of the Trinity. The rivers Welland, Nene, and a drain called Catwater flow under it. The ascent is very steep, so that carriages go under it. The triangular bridge of Crowland is mentioned in a charter of King Edward about the year 941, but the present bridge is probably not earlier than the 14th century. However, there is a rude statue said to be that of King Ethelbald, and may have been taken from the earlier structure and built into the present bridge. It is in a sitting posture at the end of the southwest wall of the bridge. The figure has a crown on the head, behind which are two wings, the arms bound together, round the shoulders a kind of mantle in the left hand a scepter and in the right a globe. The bridge consists of three piers, whence spring three wand arches which unite their groins in the center. Crowland is an instance of a decayed town, the tide of its prosperity having flowed elsewhere, though nominally a market town. It is only a village, with little more than the ruins of its former splendor remaining, when the great abbey attracted to it crowds of the nobles and gentry of England, and employed vast numbers of laborers, masons, and craftsmen on the works of the abbey and in the supply of its needs. All over the country we find beautiful old bridges, though the opening years of the present century, with the increase of heavy traction engines, 
have seen many disappear, at Colshill, Warwickshire, there is a graceful old bridge leading to the town with its six arches and massive cutwaters, Kemp is a county of bridges, picturesque medieval structures which have survived the lapse of time and the storms and floods of centuries, you can find several of these that span the medway far from the busy railway lines and the great roads, there is a fine medieval 15th century bridge at Yalding across the Bult, long, fairly level, with deeply embodied cutwaters of rough ragstone. Twyford Bridge belongs to the same period, and Loadingford Bridge, with its two arches and single buttressed cutwater, is very picturesque. Teston Bridge across the Medway has five arches of carefully wrought stonework and belongs to the 15th century, and East Farley is a fine example of the same period with four ribbed and pointed arches and four bold cutwaters of wrought stones, one of the best in the country. Alasford Bridge is a very graceful structure though it has been altered by the insertion of a wide-span arch in the center for the improvement of river navigation. Its existence has been long threatened, and the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings has done its utmost to save the bridge from destruction. Its efforts are at length crowned with success, and the Kemp County Council has decided that there are not sufficient grounds to justify the demolition of the bridge and that it shall remain. The attack upon this venerable structure will probably be renewed someday and its friends will watch over it carefully and be prepared to defend it again when the next onslaught is made. It is certainly one of the most beautiful bridges in Kent, little known and seldom seen by the world, and inappreciated even by the antiquary or the motorist. These Medway bridges continue their placid existence and proclaim the enduring work of the English masons of nearly five centuries ago. Many of our bridges are of great antiquity. The Eshing bridges over the Wee near Godalming date from the time of King John and are of singular charm and beauty. Like many others they have been threatened, the Rural District Council having proposed to widen and strengthen them, and completely to alter their character and picturesqueness. Happily the bridges were private property, and by the action of the Old Guilford Society and the National Trust they have been placed under the guardianship of the Trust, and are now secure from molestation. We give an illustration of the Crane Bridge. Salisbury, a small Gothic bridge near the church house, and seen in conjunction with that venerable building it forms a very beautiful object. Another illustration shows the huge bridge at Huntington spanning the ooze with six arches. It is in good preservation, and has an arcade of early Gothic arches, and over it the coaches used to run along the Great North Road, the scene of the mythical ride of Dick Turpin, and doubtless the youthful feet of Oliver Cromwell, who was born at Huntington, often traversed it. There is another fine bridge at St. Neots with a watchtower in the center. The little town of Bradford-on-Avon has managed to preserve almost more than any other place in England the old features which are fast vanishing elsewhere. We have already seen that most interesting attached specimen of Saxon architecture the Little Saxon Church, which we should like to think is the actual church built by St. Aldhelm, but we are compelled to believe on the authority of experts that it is not earlier than the 10th century. In all probability a church was built by St. Aldhelm at Bradford, probably of wood, and was afterwards rebuilt in stone when the land had rest and the raids of the Danes had ceased, and King Canute ruled and encouraged the building of churches, and Bishops Dunstan and Ethelwold of Winchester were specially prominent in the work. Bradford, too, has its noble church, parts of which date back to Norman times, its famous 14th century barn at Barden Farm which has a 15th century porch and gatehouse, many fine examples of the humbler specimens of domestic architecture, and the very interesting Kingston House of the 17th century, built by one of the rich clothiers of Bradford, 
when the little town like Abingdon, standeth by clothing, and all the houses in the place were figuratively built upon wool packs, but we are thinking of bridges, and Bradford has two, the earlier one being a little footbridge by the Abbey Grange, now called Barton Farm. Miss Alice Dryden tells the story of the town bridging her memorials of Old Wiltshire. It was originally only wide enough for a string of pack horses to pass along it. The rib portions of the southernmost arches and the piers for the chapel are early 14th century. The other arches were built later. Bradford became so prosperous, and the stream of traffic so much increased, and wains took the place of pack horses, that the narrow bridge was not sufficient for it, so the good clothiers built in the time of James I a second bridge alongside the first. Orders were issued in 1617 and 1621 for the repair of the very fair bridge consisting of many goodly arches of freestone, which had fallen into decay. The cost of repairing it was estimated at 200 marks. There is a building on the bridge corbelled out on a specially built pier of the bridge, the use of which is not at first sight evident. Some people call it the watch house, and it has been used as a lockup, but Miss Dryden tells us that it was a chapel similar to those which we have seen on many other medieval bridges. It belonged to the Hospital of St. Margaret, which stood at the southern end of the bridge, where the Great Western Railway crosses the road. This chapel retains little of its original work, and was rebuilt when the bridge was widened in the time of James I. Formerly there was a niche for a figure looking up the stream, but this has gone with much else during the drastic restoration. That a bridge chapel existed here is proved by Aubrey who mentions the chapel for Mass A in the midst of the bridge at Bradford. Sometimes bridges owe their origin to curious circumstances. There was an old bridge at Olney, Buckinghamshire, of which Cooper wrote when he sang, that with its wearisome but needful length bestrides the flood. The present bridge that spans the ooze with three arches and a causeway has taken the place of the long bridge of Cooper's time. This long bridge was built in the days of Queen and by two squires. Sir Robert Throckmorton of Weston Underwood and William Lowndes of Eastwood Manor. These two gentlemen were sometimes prevented from paying visits to one another by floods, as they lived on opposite sides of the ooze. They accordingly built the long bridge in continuation of an older one, of which only a small portion remains at the north end. Sir Robert found the material and Mr. Lowndes the labor. This story reminds one of a certain road in Burks and Bucks, the milestones along which record the distance between Hepfield and Bath. Why Hepfield? It is not a place of great resort or an important center of population, but when we gather that a certain Marquis of Salisbury was troubled with doubt, and had frequently to resort to Bath for the cure, and constructed the road for his special convenience at his own expense, we begin to understand the cause of the carving of Hepfield on the milestones. The study of the bridges of England seems to have been somewhat neglected by antiquaries. You will often find some good account of a town or a village in guidebooks or topographical works, but the story of the bridges is passed over in silence, owing to the reasons we have already stated. Old bridges are fast disappearing and are being substituted by the hideous erections of iron and steel. It is well that we should attempt to record those that are left, photograph them and paint them, ere the march of modern progress, evinced by the traction engine and the motor car, has quite removed and destroyed them. Chapter X The old hospitals and almshouses There are in many towns and villages hospitals not the large modern and usually unsightly buildings wherein the sick are cured, with wards all stick and span and up to date but beautiful old buildings mellowed with age wherein men and women, on whom the snows of life have begun to fall thickly, may rest and recruit and take their ease before they start on the long, dark journey from which no traveler returns to tell to those he left behind how he fared. 
Almshouses we usually call them now, but our forefathers preferred to call them hospitals, God's hostels, Godwees, as the Germans call their beautiful house of pity at Lübeck, where the tired out and moneyless folk might find harborage. The older hospitals were often called beat houses, because the inmates were bound to pray for their founder and benefactors. Some medieval hospitals, memorials of the charity of pre-Reformation Englishmen, remain, but many were suppressed during the age of spoliation, and others have been so rebuilt and restored that there is little left of the early foundation. We may notice three classes of these foundations. First, there are the pre-Reformation beat houses or hospitals. The second group is composed of those which were built during the spacious days of Queen Elizabeth. James I and Charles I the Civil War put a stop to the foundation of almshouses. The principal landowners were impoverished by the war or despoiled by the Puritans, and could not build. The charity of the latter was devoted to other purposes. With the restoration of the church and the monarchy another era of the building of almshouses set in and to this period very many of our existing institutions belong. Of the earliest group we have several examples left. There is the Noble Hospital of St. Cross at Winchester, founded in the days of anarchy during the contest between Stephen and Matilda for the English throne. Its hospitable door is still open. Bishop Henry of Blois was its founder, and he made provision for thirteen poor men to be housed, boarded, and clothed, and for a hundred others to have a meal every day. He placed the hospital under the care of the master of the Knights Hospitallers. Fortunately it was never connected with a monastery. Hence it escaped pillage and destruction at the dissolution of monastic houses. Bishop Henry was a great builder, and the Church of the Hospital is an interesting example of a structure of the transition Norman period, when the round arch was giving way to the early English Pont d'Arch. To this foundation was added in 1443 by Cardinal Beaufort an extension called the Rums House of Noble Poverty, and it is believed that the present domestic buildings were erected by him. The visitor can still obtain the dole of bread and ale at the gate of St. Cross. Winchester is well provided with old hospitals. Street John's was founded in 931 and refounded in 1289. St. Mary Magdalene. By Bishop Tilcliffe in 1173-88-49 lepers. And Christ's Hospital in 1607. Mr. Nisbet gives a good account of the hospital in memorials of Old Hampshire. And Mr. Shantmies fully describes the buildings in the Architectural Review. October. 1903, and April, 1904, we will visit some less magnificent foundations, some are of a very simple type, resembling a church with nave and chancel, the nave part was a large hall divided by partitions on each side of an alley into a little cells in which the bedesmen lived, daily mass was celebrated in the chancel, the chapel of hospital, whither the inmates resorted, but the sick and infirm who could not leave their cells were able to join in the service, St. Mary's Hospital at Chichester, is an excellent example, as it retains its wooden cells, which are still used by the inmates. It was formerly a nunnery, but in 1229 the nuns departed and the almswomen took their place. It is of wide span with low side walls, and the roof is borne by wooden pillars. There are eight cells of two rooms each, and beyond the screen is a little chapel, which is still used by the hospitalers. The Treasury, November, 1907. An article on hospitals by Dr. Hermitage Day. Archbishop Chichell founded a fine hospital at Hyam Ferrers in Northamptonshire, which saw his lowly birth, together with a school and college. About the year 1475, the building is still in existence and shows a good roof and fine perpendicular window, but the twelve bedesmen and the one sister, who was to be chosen for her plainness, no longer use the structure. 
Stanford can boast of a fine medieval hospital, the foundation of Thomas Brown in 1484 the accommodation of ten old men and two women. A new quadrangle has been built for the inmates, but you can still see the old edifice with its nave of two stories, its 15th century stained glass, and its chapel with its screen and stalls and altar. Stamford has another hospital which belongs to our second group, owing to the destruction of monasteries, which had been great benefactors to the poor and centers of vast schemes of charity. There was sore need for almshouses and other schemes for the relief of the aged and destitute. The nouveau riches, who had fattened on the spoils of the monasteries, sought to save their consciences by providing for the wants of the poor, building grammar schools, and doing some good with their wealth. Hence many almshouses arose during this period. The Stamford home was founded by the great Lord Burley in 1597. It is a picturesque group of buildings with tall chimneys, mullioned and dormer windows, on the bank of the Welland Stream, and occupies the site of a much more ancient foundation. There is the college at Cobham, in Count, the buildings forming a pleasant quadrangle south of the church. Flagged pathways cross the greensward of the court and there is a fine hall wherein the inmates used to dine together. As we traverse the village streets we often meet with these great piles of 16th century almshouses, often low, one-storied buildings, picturesque and impressive, each house having a welcoming porch with a seat on each side and a small garden full of old-fashioned flowers. The roof is tiled, on which moss and lichen grow, and the chimney stacks are tall and graceful. An inscription records the date and name of the generous founder with his arms and motto. Such a home of peace you will find at Quainton, in Buckinghamshire, founded, as an inscription records, and Odom, 1687. These almshouses were then erected and endowed by Richard Winwood, son and heir of right humbly Sir Ralph Winwood, Bart, principal secretary of state to King James I. Within these walls dwell according to the rules drawn up by Sir Ralph Verney in 1695, three poor men with oars, to be called brothers, and three poor women widows, to be called sisters. Very strict were these rules for the government of the almshouses. As to erroneous opinions in any principle of religion, the rector of Quainton being the judge, the visiting of alehouses, the good conduct of the inmates, who were to be no whisperers, quarrelers, evil speakers or contentious. These houses at Quainton are very humble abodes, other almshouses are large and beautiful buildings erected by some rich merchant, or great noble, or London City Company, for a large scheme of charity. Such are the beautiful almshouses in the Kingsland Road, Shoreditch, founded in the early part of the 18th century under the terms of the will of Sir Robert Jiffrey. They stand in a garden about an acre in extent, a beautiful oasis in the surrounding desert of warehouses reminding the passerby of the piety and loyal patriotism of the great citizens of London, and affording a peaceful home for many aged folk. This noble building, of great architectural dignity, with the figure of the founder over the porch and its garden with fine trees, has only just escaped the hands of the destroyer and been numbered among the bygone treasures of vanished England. It was seriously proposed to pull down this peaceful home of poor people and sell the valuable site to the Peabody Donation Fund for the erection of working-class dwellings. The almshouses are governed by the Ironmongers Company, and this proposal was made, but, happily, the Friends of Ancient Buildings made their protest to the charity commissioners, who have refused their sanction to the sale, and the Jiffrey almshouses will continue to exist, continue their full mission and remain the chief architectural ornament in a district that sorely needs sweetness and light.
city magnates who desired to build and endow hospitals for the aged nearly always showed their confidence in and affection for the livery companies to which they belonged by placing in their care these charitable foundations. Thus Sir Richard Whittington, a famous memory, bequeathed to the Mercer's Company all his houses and tenements in London, which were to be sold and the proceeds distributed in various charitable works. With this sum they founded a college of priests, called Whittington College, which was suppressed at the Reformation, and the almshouses adjoining the old church of St. Michael Pater Noster, for thirteen poor folk, of whom one should be principal or tutor. The great fire destroyed the buildings, they were rebuilt on the same site, but in 1835 they were fallen into decay, and the company re-erected them at Islington, where you will find Whittington College, providing accommodation for 28 poor women. Besides this the Mercers had charge of Lady Mycosum's houses at Stepney, founded in 1692 and rebuilt in 1857, and the Trinity Hospital at Greenwich, founded in 1615 by Henry Howard, Earl of Northampton. The Searle was of a very charitable disposition, and founded other hospitals at Castle Rising in Norfolk and Clen in Shropshire. The Mercers continued to manage the property and had built a new hospital at Shawisham. Besides making grants to the others created by the founder, it is often the custom of the companies to expend out of their private income far more than they receive from the funds of the charities which they administer. The grocer's company had one's houses and a free grammar school at Houndle in Northamptonshire, founded by Sir William Laxton in 1556, upon which they had expended vast sums of money. The drapers administer the mile and alms houses and school founded in 1728 by Francis Bancroft. Sir John Jollis's Ums Houses at Tottenham, founded in 1618, and very many others. They have 200 in the neighborhood of London alone, and many others in different parts of the country. Near where I am writing is Lucas's Hospital at Wokingham, founded by Henry Lucas in 1663, which he placed in the charge of the company. It is a beautiful Carolian house with a central portion and two wings, graceful and pleasing in every detail. The chapel is situated in one wing and the master's house in the other, and there are sets of rooms for twelve poor men chosen from the parishes in the neighborhood. The fishmongers had the management of three important hospitals, at Bray, in Berkshire, famous for its notable vicar. There stands the ancient Jesus Hospital, founded in 1616 under the will of William Goddard, who directed that there should be built rooms with chimneys in the said hospital, fit and convenient for forty poor people to dwell and inhabit it and that there should be one chapel or place convenient to serve Almighty God in forever with public and divine prayers and other exercises of religion, and also one kitchen and bakehouse common to all the people of the said hospital. Jesus Hospital is a quadrangular building, containing forty almshouses surrounding a court which is divided into gardens, one of which is attached to each house. It has a pleasing entrance through a gabled brick porch which has over the Tudor-shaped doorway a statue of the founder and mullion latticed windows. The old people live happy and contented lives, and find in the eventide of their existence a cheerful home in peaceful and beautiful surroundings. The fishmongers also have one's houses at Harrisham, in Count, founded by Mark Quest, citizen and fishmonger of London, in 1642, which they rebuilt in 1772, and Street Peter's Hospital, Wandsworth, formerly called the fishmongers' almshouses. The goldsmiths had a very palatial pile of almshouses at Acton Park called Perrine's Arms Houses, with a grand entrance portico, and most of the London companies provide in this way homes for their decayed members, so that they may pass their closing years in peace and freedom from care. Fishermen, 
who pass their lives in storm and danger reaping the harvest of the sea, have not been forgotten by pious benefactors. One of the most picturesque buildings in Great Yarmouth is the Fisherman's Hospital, of which we give some illustrations. It was founded by the corporation of the town in 1702 for the reception of 20 old fishermen and their wives. It is a charming house of rest, with its gables and dormer windows and its general air of peace and repose. The old men look very comfortable after battling for so many years with the storms of the North Sea. Charles I.I. granted to the hospital an annuity of L160 for its support, which was paid out of the excise on beer, but when the duty was repealed the annuity naturally ceased. The old hospital at Kings Lynn was destroyed during the siege. As this quaint inscription tells, this hospital was burnt down at Lynn S.E.G. and R.E.B.U.L.T. 1649 and A.D.H.M.A.X.E. Mayor and E.D.W. Robinson and Treasurer Pro T.N.P.R. owned R.H. and several important hospitals. Outside the Magdalen Gate stood the Magdalen Hospital, founded by Bishop Herbert, the first bishop. It was a house for lepers, and some portions of the Norman Chapel still exist in a farm building by the roadside. The far-famed Street Giles's Hospital in Bishopsgate Street is an ancient foundation, erected by Bishop Walter Suffield in 1249 for poorer chaplains and other poor persons. It nearly vanished at the Reformation era, like so many other kindred institutions, but Henry VIII and Edward VI granted it a new charter. The poor clergy were, however, left out in the cold, and the benefits were confined to secular folk. For the accommodation of its inmates the chancel of the church was divided by a floor into an upper and a low.